You're listening to The Recovery, a series of conversations about rediscovering the ancient faith in order to reclaim our own. Well, hello. Once again, I hope this finds you well. Welcome to the show. This past week at church, we were having a conversation that I think opened eyes for a lot of people, so I thought I would share it here. We were looking at the moment when Jesus calms the storm, um, and I may have mentioned before, we're, we're working our way through the book of Matthew, so we were looking at the story in Matthew's gospel. And it's a moment when Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. He's been uh, healing and teaching in Capernaum, and he's presumably tired, and so he wants to go to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, but it's really just a big lake. Um, and so he instructs his disciples to follow him into the boat, and in uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus gets in first and his disciples follow, and, that, and Matthew tells us that because he's talking about what it takes to follow Jesus. Um, Luke and Mark don't give us that detail, they just say that Jesus got in the boat with the disciples. So anyway, as they go across the the lake, uh, Jesus is asleep in the boat and a storm comes up. Uh, Matthew says there's a, a great trembling, uh, presumably as the, the winds kick up and the boat starts to shake. That's what he's, that's what he's describing. Disciples, of course, are, are scared. Um, they're, because the Sea of Galilee, the lake, is uh, it's actually below sea level down in, a, in the middle of a mountain range, and the winds would whip through the valleys and across the lake and would stir up pretty pretty nasty storms. Um, still does. Uh, we still we watch this happen. Um, and so there were really bad storms that would come up, uh, windstorms that would come out of squalls that would come out of nowhere. And presumably this is what's happening and the, the disciples are scared for their life. Um, in fact, they wake Jesus up and say, you know, Jesus, help us. We are perishing. We're dying here. And Jesus says, why are you, why are you such cowards? Um, and stands up and rebukes the storm. And in response, the men um, were told, wonder and ask amongst themselves, uh, what sort of man or what kind of man is this? Meaning Jesus, of course. And it's really an important question, and it's one that as readers of Matthew's gospel, or any of the gospels for that matter, we are left with. We have to ask, what sort of man is this Jesus? We, of course, know that Jesus existed. There are people that will question that, but no, no one um, serious who studies history, whether you know Christian or otherwise, uh, the church or otherwise, um, doubts that Jesus existed. All right. So if somebody tells you that Jesus doesn't exist, just smile and nod and walk away because that's that's not to be taken seriously. We know he existed. So the question then becomes: what what type of man? What sort of man is this? And and they're asking what sort of man has command of the wind, because when he rebukes the wind, we're told that there is a great calm that comes upon the sea, and the image there is like a, a glass water, right? So, completely calm. And they're wondering, who in the, who in the world is this guy, right? What kind of man? He's, he's not like us, they're beginning to realize. And that's you know, like I said, that's the question that faces all of us as we come to the Gospels and we, we are faced with this man, Jesus, who we know existed, and we're wondering what kind of man is he? And so on Sunday, we were talking about sort of the, or, the orthodox understanding of Jesus and his natures, and the way that the, the church has talked about it for 2,000 years is that Jesus is one person, a man, 
with two natures. So he's two natures, one divine and one human, uh, joined, but neither influencing the other so that he's, you know, the, the man nature doesn't influence or degrade the divine nature, nor does the divine nature diminish the, the human nature. These things exist alongside each other, co-joined in the one person of Jesus. And when the the early church fathers and mothers are talking about a person, we're talking about a relationship. Whenever you have questions about what something means in theology of the early church or in the, the Bible, you can pretty much bet that it has something to do with relationship. And so when we talk about a person, we're talking about a being that is capable of being in relationship with another being. So we're talking about the Trinity. We talk about God in three persons. There are three, they're not three distinct uh, individuals we think of a person as an individual, and certainly Jesus was an individual, um, but the term person or personhood means that you are able to be in relationships. So the three portions or the three parts of God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or the, the Father, the Logos, and the Spirit, are three different parts of God that are in relationship with one another. That's what it means to be a person, not, not an individual. So that's important to understand. So we have in Jesus one person, one being who can be in relationship with man as well as God himself, uh, but he has two natures. That's, what, that's the orthodox understanding. And because he is uh, the divine logos, the second member of the Trinity, who in its own right is a person in relationship with the other two persons of the Trinity, uh, we have to give serious thought to how that changes the type of man that Jesus is, right? So we have one nature. We are human, right? We are one nature in one person. He is two natures in one person. And the Logos, uh, the Bible is telling us, is the second member of the Trinity is the creative force. John, in in the opening of his gospel, will tell us that uh, the Logos, the eternal word, the second member of the Trinity, is that by which and through which uh, everything was created, Paul will tell us that uh, he is, God is above all, through all, and in all. That's in Ephesians 4.1 or 4.3, I believe, actually. Um, And then in the opening of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of his being through whom all things were created um, and by whose word all things are sustained, right? So the, the Logos is the animating force of the world. It is the the ordering principle contained within the Godhead that creates the world. So it is that divine nature that sustains the entire world. In thinking about the incarnation, one of the early church fathers, Athanasius, makes a comment in one of uh, his texts, it's called On the Incarnation. Um, It's a great little text, it's about 90 pages, it's a quick read. If you have a chance to grab it, I highly recommend doing so. But he, he's talking about the, what, what's going on in the incarnation and how the, we are to understand the nature of Jesus. And uh, he, he mentions that though Jesus was contained in the body, so, or, or the logos rather, was contained in the body of Jesus the man, it did not cease to exist elsewhere. That the Logos is eternal, it is infinite, all of the omnis, if you learn those in catechism or in Sunday school or confirmation, um, that God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, that he's omniscient, that he knows everything, that he's uh, omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, and there are a couple others. 
um, that these characteristics of, of God exist in the Logos and don't cease to exist in the Logos simply because uh, the Logos is uh, incarnated in the person of Jesus. So just because he'll say, just because the, the Logos was present in the person of Jesus doesn't mean that the universe w- went without his sustaining power. So the, the infinite Logos, second member of the Trinity, though present in the body of Jesus, did not cease to uphold the world by his word, right? He didn't cease to be the creative force by which and through which all things were made. He didn't cease to be uh, a member of the Godhead that is in all, above all, and through all. And so when this logos, this divine nature is standing up, um, you know, it's the two natures in one person of Jesus. When Jesus speaks, remember, it is his word that sustains, that is sustaining this sea, that is sustaining the wind, that is sustaining all that is. When he speaks that it must be calm, when he rebukes it, it can't do anything else because it is his, by his and through his power that it exists in the first place. It is by and through his power that it is operating in the world. Um, and so when he speaks up and rebukes it, it can't do anything but obey because it is reacting to that which brought it into existence to begin with. And this is the answer to what sort of man is this? Too often we come to this question of what sort of man is Jesus, and we think that he is just a man, right? And we think of him as us, which we aren't wrong in. Of course, he's he's the human nature in human form, right? But we forget that he is also the divine logos, uh, the divine nature in human form as well. And so he's not the same sort of man we are. Um, and so as we look back at the story of uh, this calming of the sea, when Jesus wakes up, when they, when the disciples wake him up in terror, right? And, and a lot of b- translations will say, you know, Jesus responds and says, why are you afraid? But fear, um, these are not simply just emotions. When we talk about fear or faith or um, these types of emotions in, in the first century, where what we understand is those emotions mean action, right? Actions come along with them. So why are you acting afraid, right? And another way to translate that, which I mentioned earlier, is why are you being a coward, right? It's, a, it's one thing to feel afraid. We talk about this. You can feel afraid, but don't let those, that fear dictate your actions. And the, the trouble here is that the fear of the storm is dictating the actions. And, and Jesus' question is, why are you afraid? Well, on the face of it, why are you acting cowardly? On the face of it, that makes perfect sense, right? It's a deadly storm that's going to swamp them. Right? The waves are crashing in over the boat. Um, but when we reflect on who Jesus is, like who, who is this man that's in the boat with them, there actually is no reason to be afraid, of course. Right? This is the divine logos in human form. Um, he is the one who created and sustains all things. And so why would you be afraid with, with Jesus right next to you? And so that becomes the application that becomes the the moral of the story as it were or what we ought to be taking from the story what matthew wants us to understand is that when we realize what sort of man jesus is what sort of divine yet human person this is why would we be such cowards why would we go through our life acting out of our deepest fears he is in control of all that might frighten us or scare us or terrify us does that mean that at every moment he's going to stand up and rebuke it and it's going to calm down? No, absolutely not. 
But what it means is he's alongside of us through his spirit, that he is the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite word that is in all and through all things. And as we walk through our life, he is right there next to us. And come what may, in the end, he will make all things right. Why, why would we fear death? Every single one of us is going there. Barring the return of Jesus before our death, we will die. And that, is not to, that itself is not to be feared. It is through death that we are moved to the new creation, right? It is Jesus going through death himself, conquering death and coming out on the other side that is the promise for us. We ought to welcome death, not that we would hasten its arrival, but that we don't look on it with fear. We recognize that that is the gateway to take us to the kingdom, right? That whatever is on the other side is far better than what's on this side. And so we need not fear death because as we approach it, as we enter into situations in our life, which might bring it about, whether that's, uh, you know, actual physical death or a spiritual death or, um, you know, think about the things that you fear or that you work to avoid in our lives, right? Uh, poverty, hunger, uh, all of these things ultimately are a manifestation of our fear of death. We fear these things because we know that ultimately if we continue in that way or in that life, it will bring about our death. And Jesus looks at us and says, why, why would you be such a coward? I am the eternal logos. I am the divine nature embodied in man so that I might relate to you, that I might walk with you, that I might speak to you, that I might be your example that you might look to me every day and be encouraged, that you might draw strength from me, that you might be afraid in moments, but that you might not act cowardly. And we see this in the early church. We see those who would follow and become part of the church picking up this understanding of who Jesus is and facing death time and time again, knowing that God would be with them through it, that God would ultimately make all things right that the renewal and the restoration of all things that is promised throughout the Old Testament will be brought about, and that Jesus is the sort of man that makes that possible. So for those of us who claim to be Christians, who claim to follow this man called Jesus, we have no reason to be cowardly. We have no reason to shrink from the call that is upon our lives. And so may you go forward from this day with a recovered understanding of who this man is, what sort of man this is, that he is your God, the divine being, incarnated to speak, to walk, to eat, to relate to each and every one of us. And may you go through your days with the bravery and the courage that comes from an understanding of who this man is. We'll see you next time. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, leave a review and share the podcast with someone who might find it interesting.